When I was 16, I began to have severe pain and be tired most of the time. After feeling like this for a while, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia syndrome. Growing up in church, I would often respond when being invited to be prayed for, but nothing ever seemed to change. I'd find myself being filled with hope, thinking, maybe this time I will be healed, only to come away from it feeling so low and disappointed that God didn't answer my prayer. After years of unanswered prayer, I stopped going forward. I thought that if God would heal me, then he will whenever he wants, and I'm okay with that. There were still times I'd cry out to God and ask him about my illness, but I was always met with silence. As I grew older, I was faced with another unanswered question. Will I remain single? This was such a frustrating experience because I had always dreamt of being married one day with children. But God never gave me an answer. My friends tried to comfort me saying things like, I'm sure it'll happen one day. But they never knew what would happen. The uncertainty and silence hurt the most. I often think that if God had made it clear, then I wouldn't have to feel this way. That being said, I don't want to become bitter towards him because I'm grateful for everything he has done. It's just something I must remind myself of daily. What God has already said is good, and what he hasn't doesn't mean he's disappointed or disconnected from my life. If God wanted to answer my prayers now, then he would speak. Hi everybody, it's so good to be talking with you today. Uh, if you're new to Emmanuel, my name is Joel. Um, let me start by asking you a question. You, you may have noticed this. Some of the, the stories that we tell, some of the most famous, uh, ranging from fairy tales to great plays, um, have the, the name of the, the main character in the title, but the hero of the story is not the title character. So I think of something like uh, Sleeping Beauty or King Lear. Uh, one or two other plays might be good examples where there's, there's someone in the title that you, you realise this is a story of a particular person, but when you get into the story, you notice that there's someone else, there's another character unnamed in the title who becomes the heroic figure. If you were telling the story of your life through a, a play or a, a, maybe a TV box set, maybe a feature film, who would be the hero? Think about it. One of the things that we get used to when we read the teaching of Jesus is a strange, a strange assumption he seemed to make, something that was clearly deeply woven into all of his teaching, the way he, he understood the world is that humanity is helpless. People are in need. He, he uh, spent a lot of his time emphasizing this. Uh, just uh, almost at the top of my head, one of the, the phrases that uh, he famously spoke about the human race in, in John chapter 8, where he says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. We tend to find that language 
perhaps melodramatic. We don't feel like slaves necessarily. We might, we might feel we, we live with a relative amount of liberty on, on most levels. And it seems ridiculous to imagine ourselves as slaves. And yet Jesus seems to insist on it. In fact, the Bible in general talks about humans being under bondage, being under terrible control from significant forces, sometimes referred to by Christians and by the Bible as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world being the, the powers of this world, the forces that seem to hold people under their control, whether by uh, literal force or by subtle influence. Uh, the way that worldly thinking tends to dominate us to the point where our freedom is actually diminished without us realizing. The flesh, the, the inward desires, the things that aren't necessarily out there in the world, they're things that seem to uh, be churned up inwardly, the longings and hopes and motivations. And then the devil, the, the unseen forces of evil that we might even question the existence of if we're secular. We might think, well, that's a, a ridiculous idea. And yet Jesus himself insisted on the reality of a genuine force a power, a personality of evil who is at work in the world. All these things can so control the human being as to bring them unto an experience of enslavement. It, it does sound a dramatic word, and yet Jesus was happy to use it. And we might say, well, it just feels, feels unlikely. But perhaps we're being like the person that doesn't notice something that everyone else is deeply aware of. Maybe you've heard of the person that, that visits a friend living near a train track and says, how do you put up with the train noise every few minutes? How, do you, how can you live here with the trains going by? And the, the person who lives there says, what train? I haven't noticed. What are you? Oh, the train. Yeah, I've been living here so long, I don't even notice. We become aware of things at first and then gradually become so familiar that they barely exist in our imagination. And perhaps Jesus means that our enslavement is like that, something we don't even acknowledge, however real it may be. Having said that, our ordinary human experience can taste like slavery at certain points in our lives. It's as though God will use circumstances to help us to see our deep dependence and our need. This, this may be literal slavery. It was for the people in the story that we're looking at this autumn. For you, it, it probably won't be quite like that, but it will be other kinds of uh, enslavement, perhaps to financial difficulty. Maybe we run into a level of debt that feels like slavery. Maybe we get enslaved to uh, relationships that, that it's hard to imagine breaking free from. Maybe we get enslaved to a medical problem. Maybe we're sick to the point of feeling in bondage. Maybe emotional uh, sickness that, that is inward and hard to even understand it, but it, it's, it's so clearly there and it, it seems to spoil us. It seems to rob us of our freedom and helps us to feel enslaved. Maybe, maybe it's a mixture of all of these things. Maybe it's, it's something that we've, we've never really thought of in those terms, and yet there's a genuine pain there that we, we've perhaps got to understand so that we can start to see our genuine dependence on the God who made us for himself. And that's really what we see in this story. I want us to look at this 
passage of the Bible. We're looking at Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We're taking a few verses out of each of those chapters to help us move forward at a pace with the story. Let's watch these words as they come on the screen together. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It seems to me that when we go into an experience of enslavement, we will respond by placing our hope in something. And I want to talk in the time we have today about the three options that are shown in this part of the Bible for uh, the placing of hope. These people who are living through the torment of bondage, in their struggle, they turn to different kinds of hope. They put their hope in different things. And, and we'll do the same. We'll, we'll tend to, uh, we'll need hope. We can't exist without hope. It's human to hope. It becomes inhuman when we simply can't hope. And, and when we place our hope in something, we're demonstrating where our faith is. We're demonstrating what we ultimately trust. And what we've got here is, is three potential uh, ways of focusing hope. The first is hoping in a change of circumstances, a general change, just wanting it to happen soon enough, as, as, as long as some kind of change takes place. I just, I just, hope, I just hope that 
the circumstances shift, and, and, and when they shift, everything will be okay. Everything will be bearable. Everything will be back to normal, and I will be free. I will sense and feel the freedom that I've longed for. And you, you kind of get a trace of that in, in these verses here. There's an there's a interesting uh, reference in verse 23 to uh, the way that after the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, died the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It's, it's striking because this is after the death of the Pharaoh who's been described as the, the tyrant who's brought them under terrible slavery. And so he's gone. The, the tyrant is gone. The witch is dead. It's like, you know, we, we're free, surely. It's, it's all over. The circumstances have changed. We knew they would. We were waiting for him to die. <laughs> it will all be okay when Pharaoh dies. But we know, don't we, from ordinary experience that we can be bitterly disappointed by a change of circumstances. The change can yield to something that's either just the same or even worse. And, and that seems to be what happens. Uh, this Pharaoh dies, and then it says the people of Israel groan. They still groan because of their slavery. So the condition, the reality, the slavery hasn't changed. The circumstances may have shifted to some extent, but really the deep problem remains. And we, we have to face that reality ourselves. In, in different ways, we will put our hope in, in false, uh, false dawns, false breakthroughs that don't necessarily yield the liberty our hearts long for. We, we might yearn, thinking, well, everything will be okay when I've... I've got a girlfriend, or I've got married, or I've had children, and this is the hope, this is the thing that when it comes, I will be validated. When it comes, I will be free. Everything will be right in that change of circumstances. When I get that promotion, I only need to get that shift in my career, that breakthrough. I only need to become more effective. I only need to, to shed loads of pounds, to lose weight. I only need to do, and then I will, I will have become what I'm meant to be. If, if only our politicians would change, if only we would be able to vote the right president in. There are people in the US right now that are putting their hope in a change of president. And some are putting their hope in retaining the current president because that's all that matters. That's what we put our hope in. And yet we've all had the experience of placing an inordinate amount of hope in something which even when it comes doesn't really yield us the, the harvest that we long for, the freedom that we promised doesn't come. And there is a promise over these people, a promise that they perhaps don't even understand, they perhaps don't even pay attention to. They're thinking in terms of just being free from bondage and chains. They don't understand that what is in their destiny is a land, is dignity, is freedom of a kind they wouldn't have dreamed of. God wants to bring them not just out of chains, but out of Egypt. God wants to bring them into promise and destiny and purpose and, and calling in this life. And so often we will settle for just, well, just a shift of circumstances, just a change in the White House, or just a change. As long as when COVID's over, when, when we can get back to normal, when COVID's over, everything will be all right. Are your hopes really so low? Do you not understand that God made you for greater destiny than just a shift of circumstances? That will be one of the things we put our hopes in. The second that I guess we'll perhaps dwell on a bit more is self 
confidence, hoping in ourselves, hoping in our own sufficiency. We see this in the story of the kind of semi-hero of the book of Exodus, if you like. He is the kind of named character, the most named character, but we understand as we look at his story, he's, he's not, he would never have thought of himself as the hero. <laughs> Though he might have started that way. Moses is an extraordinarily privileged young man. We've, we've missed out the story of his birth and infancy. Perhaps you know the story of how he grew up, though a Hebrew, in the, the, the Pharaoh's palace. He grew up as a son of the Pharaoh. He grew up effectively as a prince. This, this man who was afforded an enormous level of privilege in this superpower of the age. Moses, one of the great heroes and lords of the age, is brought to a place of desolation. It's brought to a place of recognizing this insufficiency. And it's, it's shocking for him because the context is that he thinks of himself as the solution. So you see how he, he comes to the aid of one of his fellow Hebrews. He's clearly learning to identify with his own people. He doesn't see himself as an Egyptian. In spite of all the privilege he's known, he's, he's kind of proud, it seems, to identify with the, the oppressed people the people under slavery. He's, he's, he's ashamed of his privilege. And he wants to, to identify with those who he can call his brothers. And yet when he does so, he, he realises that he hasn't got what he thinks he's got. He deals with an Egyptian violently. He murders him, hides the body. And then he's confronted with two Hebrews fighting a few days later. And he tries to rebuke, he tries to correct. But their response is fascinating. They turn to him and say, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And who made you a judge? Who made you a prince over us? I can imagine the younger Moses might have thought, well, Pharaoh made me a prince. I've grown up a prince. I am a prince. That's who I am. Thank you very much. But he's lost that identity in this moment. He, He has no status in Pharaoh's court but he now feels he has no status amongst his fellow Hebrews. He doesn't seem to be recognised there. He, he, he realises he's got nothing. I've, I've grown up thinking I'm everything and come to the realisation that I'm nothing. I've got nothing. I, I can't change anything. I can't even sort out a fight between two Hebrews, let alone help my nation out of slavery. I've got nothing. The reality for every Christian is that God will, in some way, at some point, maybe at repeated points, bring you to a place, like Moses, of realising your insufficiency. In fact, you can't really become a Christian without this. It's how we come in. It's how we're welcomed in. It's, it's the point of entry to a relationship with Jesus because we have to recognize, I've got nothing. We have to become poor in spirit. We have to become those who mourn. We have to understand in ourselves, we're failures. This is a difficult thing to come to terms with. It can feel like a brutal realization. It can feel like a constant one that that kind of keeps going at us. And it can be shocking. I remember the, the words of the, the heavyweight champion when I was young. Gah. 
who used to say, Mike Tyson used to say, everyone has a fight plan until they get punched in the mouth. And life can be like that for us. We can have a plan. We can be like the young Moses. We can go into a role, into some kind of activity, some kind of project, some kind of destiny, some kind of plan for life until we get punched in the mouth. Like Moses, end up exhausted, end up weary, end up inwardly impoverished. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. And when God comes to speak to him in chapter 3, it's fascinating that he says, I can't speak. God says to him, Moses, I'm going to send you. You're my man. I'm going to send you (laughs) to set my people free. And Moses says, I can't. I can't speak. I've got nothing. Seems to me that God will work any amount of time he needs to to bring you and me to the point where we can say, I can't do it. I haven't got it. And it seems that those are the times when God's ready to start using us. God's ready to do the thing that he always wanted to do in us, which is to bring resurrection life. Not our kind of life, not our kind of power, not our kind of self-sufficiency and personal development, inner strength. You can keep looking for the hero inside yourself. I'm afraid you'll be looking forever because God has to bring resurrection to the dead. That's what we are. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave. Have you seen that about yourself? The sooner, the better. For Moses, it took decades. I have to say, speaking personally, I found this year to be very much an exercise in learning this lesson all over again. I came into 2020 personally feeling a higher level of inward weariness than I think I've ever felt. I couldn't completely explain why, but I just felt inwardly exhausted. There were lots of contributing factors, lots of things that had happened over time that I think had worn me down, perhaps more than I even realised. But then when COVID hit, I remember thinking, I'm not sure I've got the strength to, to lead the church through this. And I think I tried to sort of pull myself together. I was due a sabbatical. Uh, I, every seven years, roughly, as a team, we, we give ourselves a, a break and uh, we take it in turns just to have a couple of months or so just to stop and take some time out. And I thought, well, I won't take my sabbatical. I, I think it's not a good time to do it during a world crisis. But as the time went on, I began to realise there's something of an inward crisis going on as well. I realised, like Moses, that I'm not going to solve the world's problems because I'm actually part of the world's problems. And I need a saviour. I needed some time. I needed to stop. I'm so grateful for some dear friends, pastors of other churches, leaders within the New Frontiers, wider family of churches who spoke into the situation and talked to me, asked me and my wife, how are you really doing? And were able to say, look, Joel, we really think it would be good to just stop for a while. And so I did, and and by God's grace, we've raised up a phenomenal team of extraordinary people in this church who led through what I can only say has been a a, a hectic and bizarre roller coaster of a season, but led through it with phenomenal gifting and energy and humility 
and teamsmanship. And what I see when I look around at the moment in this church is an, an amazing number of men and women who have given themselves over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, often completely voluntarily to make it work, while I've been able to stop and rest. Doesn't do a lot for your sense of heroism, but maybe that was what I needed. Maybe God was trying to remind me yet again that I need to learn to be weak. I need to learn to be a failure. That's what we all need to learn, friends. We need to learn who is the hero of the story. Sometimes I allow myself to imagine that it's me. I, I find that instinct creeping up. Even after I've preached to you guys for years and years, even after I've been a Christian for about 40 years, it's funny, there's something about that number. I, I can think of so many times in my life where I've had to sit someone down in the church and say, it's not about you. You're not the hero of the story. Find grace, rest in his strength. I've preached it to hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And people have said to me, that changed my life. I'm so grateful for your message of grace. I'm so grateful for what you've learned. And I've learned it from my father. And, and he's famous for being a teacher of grace. I ought to know. <laughs> but I've hit 45 and Jesus still has to teach me. And he uses seasons of almost humiliation, if necessary, to help me see my dependence on him. Help me see that in a time of exhaustion, in a time of slavery, in a time of need, the answers are not really in here. So if the answers aren't in just a change of circumstances, when it's all over and everything we're back to normal and we can be happy again with our semi-existence here in Egypt, and if the answer is neither that nor me and my ability to find the giant within and, and having found the hero within myself, do something great. Where is the answer? What is the solution? Well, we, we, we see it really in these last verses, and I love the way it's written. It's so simple. It's so basic. It's so primal. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the God of the Bible. He's determined to know his people in their brokenness. The way we tend to imagine life with God is, is that he exists to airlift us out of our miseries and our woes and our struggles. That's his job. We hit problems, we pick up the phone, God breaks in and rescues us, takes us away, pulls us out of the flames, pulls us out. That's what he does. He pulls us. He's the rescuer, right? That's, that's who he is. He comes and he, he makes it all good again. He makes it right again. He, he gets it back to how it was a few minutes ago. Thanks, God. Thanks. Excellent. I'll call you again when I'm in trouble. God doesn't do it like that. The more I read this book, the more I realize it's, it's, it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that. See, why does God even lead them into slavery? He does do that. 
You'll find that in your life. God will seem to lead you into things. He'll lead you into a wilderness. He'll lead you into a tough situation. You'll think, God, I thought you led me this way. I thought you led me into this job. I thought you led me into this relationship. I thought you, you led me into this church. I thought you led me into this town. You took me here. You put me here. So I thought everything would be fine and happy. Yeah, I did lead you into it. Led you into it because my plans for you are better than your immediate happiness. My plans for you are a promise of land. My plans for you are a promise of true freedom. And my plans for you are myself. I want you to know me. I want you to become close to me. I want you to build friendship with me. I often use the example of superheroes who wear a mask. You know, the Spider-Man, the Batman, the guy you're not supposed to recognize, the guy that rescues you. And the whole point is that you don't know who rescued you. You're not allowed to know. The God of the Bible is the precise opposite. He rescues you in order to show his face to you. He rescues you in order to bring you to himself. And so our, our slavery might be his means to help us cry out, call out and long for him and learn that he's the one we really need. He's the one that we, in our heart of hearts, are most desperate for. And the beautiful news, friends, is that he does hear us. He hears us when we cry. I love the way that Jesus prayed when he was outside the tomb of one of his best friends. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus ready to raise his friend from the dead who's been in the tomb for days. And Jesus uses these fascinating words. Uh, when he's about to do it, he says, uh, he looks up to heaven, he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I am on account, he says, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I've often thought, why did he say that? What does he mean? This John's gospel is a bit cryptic. What does he mean by that? Why does he say, I'm saying this on account of all these people around that they might know? I think it's because a few days later, he's going to cry out to God on the cross and famously, hundreds of people will watch while nothing happens. There's no answer. There's just a lonely man naked on wood, dying, bleeding out his life. And he's saying, why have you forsaken me? And he's saying, I, I want them to hear. While I'm raising this man from there, I want them to see it because I want them to know I am sent by you. I am who I say I am. I am sent by God. And I've got authority to raise it. I've got authority over life and death. Don't doubt it. Don't doubt it. When you see me on the cross in the darkest moment, when everything looks so bleak, when it's literally gone dark, <laughs> and your hero, your saviour, your rescuer is hanging on a cross, don't freak out. <laughs> don't lose your mind. That was what was meant to happen. I wanted you to understand that God is there in the darkest times. God is in control in the times when you feel most utterly helpless. When you think, I cannot understand why God would even dream of taking me into this situation. Why would you do that? You look back and you say, but I know he's got power over life and death. I believe it. I know it. I know who he is. He's good. He's good. And you know what? He knows me in the dark. He walks with me in the pain. 
Do you realise that's what he's like? Do you realise, like we said a couple of weeks ago, he's got eyes in the back of his head? He doesn't have to be facing you. It doesn't have to be a bright, shiny, happy time for God to be watching you steadily. He is always facing you. He is always aware of you. And you can be sure of it. You can carry through your life with that deep awareness of his power. So many of us, we make this choice between, well, God either airlifts me out of my problem or God isn't real. Those are the two choices. Either all my problems are gone or God's not real. Friends, there's a third possibility, and that is that God is determined to know you in the difficulty. Those very last words of the chapter, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Do you realise he knows you? Do you realise he knows you more than you know yourself? The path of the righteous is known to the Lord. The word know in the Bible is a much richer word than the word me and you use. It means intimacy. It means care. It means affection. It means compassion. God is so aware of us in our darkest times, in the times when we long for his redemption. He's going to come to us in our need and he's going to walk through the valley with us. Father, we thank you for your grace, undeserved, We confess that we are helpless. We confess that we are in need. And we're so grateful that you promise grace to the humble. And so we say, Lord, we confess our pride. We're sorry that we dream that we're the heroes. We dare to imagine ourselves as something special. We come back to failure. We come back to leaning on grace. And we lean hard and we receive. In Jesus' name, amen.